Someone snitched that I was crying in the bathroom one day. One of my bosses pulled me aside and like threatened to fire me. It was an unpaid college credit internship. I was working 12 hour days and I'm like, I'm paying you $45,000 for three reels. That's crazy. I'm scared to embrace this thing when I don't deal with any of the obstacles pretty much that come with it. Mm. Would you be telling your best friend she doesn't deserve that incredible opportunity that came her way after years of hard work? You're all here for me. Like Jack Harlow's in the back of this restaurant right now answering questions about sex for me. (laughs) Okay. Hello and welcome back to Passion Project Pending. If you have listened before, if not, thank you so much regardless for tuning in today. Today is Monday, May 8th. I actually recorded this episode last week, but I'm just now getting around to finishing editing and I'm so excited. This week I get to interview Tess Garcia as my guest. So Tess and I studied abroad together in Spain in college and she is currently living in New York City. For her main gig, she creates marketing and social strategies catered towards Latinx audiences for clients like HBO Max at a company called Worthy. In addition, she produces a Shorty Awards-nominated podcast called Going Mental by Eileen Kelly with over 100,000 monthly downloads and, incredibly, also finds time to be a freelance journalist focused on pop culture, fashion, social justice, and the intersection between the three. From writing her first cover story interviewing Jack Harlow for Teen Vogue at age 24 to being flown out to Coachella by Adidas more recently, Tess has had an incredible range of experiences in the media industry. She has curated a career for herself based on her interests and passion through relentless outreach, building her own connections in her industry, and being outspoken about the things she cares about. So tune in to hear more about her background and how she got to where she is today, as well as our discussion on various topics ranging from dilemmas of social media as a career to the numbers of what Tess makes managing multiple streams of income and living in one of the most expensive cities in the world as new york city is just like san francisco but seriously this episode is a blessing to my soul as i just listened back to it tess has so much so many pieces of wisdom to share just based on her experiences and it was just really lovely getting to know everything about what Tess has achieved. And also, I really appreciated her transparency on sharing her numbers about what she makes. I think it's so important to get more visibility into what people are making and how they are maintaining their lifestyle in, in a big city, especially. So thanks for, for tuning in. Let's get into it. Thank you so much for being down. That's amazing. Of course. Yeah, no, I'm, I love things like this. Awesome. Okay. So could you tell me a little bit about your experience in college? You also went to Michigan, choosing like what to study, what to pursue, and kind of how you imagined your career after college, like what you thought it looked like at that time. Yeah, I really didn't want to go to Michigan. I really wanted to yeah, I really wanted to just, I wanted to leave the state, you know, growing up there, it was very much, if you get into Michigan, you go to Michigan. And I was like, I really would like to just leave. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. But financially it made the most sense to stay. And 
there was no journalism major at Michigan. And that was a huge thing for me in high school. I knew that was something I wanted to pursue at least to some degree. So I was a little frustrated being like, well, they don't even have the major for the thing that I want to do. But I mean, I, from the advice I'd gotten from, not even the advice I'd gotten from people in that business, because I didn't really know anybody in that, but it seemed pretty clear that I wouldn't necessarily need to major in the exact thing that I was going to do in an industry like media, as opposed to like a doctor who needs to specialize in the exact thing they studied in med school. So I was like, I'll get my liberal arts education. I'll major in like whatever the next closest thing is. Cause I knew they had like a communications major and stuff. So that's what I ended up doing. And while at Michigan though, I also majored in something called social theory and practice, which is basically like a build your own social science major in the residential college. It's very much like you look at a social issue that stands out to you or you take particular interest in and the means through which you would want to address it. So you kind of create a structured curriculum dipping into existing majors curriculums across the school to create something that feels comprehensive based on like a proposal you create for your academic advisor. It was really cool. I centered that around Latinx issues in the U.S. broadly and looking at the role that media could play in representing and platforming voices that don't ordinarily have that. And yeah, I think that that ended up segueing interestingly into to what I do now in ways that I don't think I expected. But generally speaking, I felt like I was just there to get a degree. I didn't really feel like my major in terms of communications in particular was such a massive department. I don't really feel I got any major resources out of it. I didn't, I didn't pursue them really but it didn't feel like there was more I could get out of school than I could from my own like internet savvy in terms of networking and things like that. I'm like, I hope mm-hmm. that answers the question. I feel like I went very, yeah. attentive, the very academic of it all, but. No, I just recently like quite intensely actually just recorded a solo episode and I was reflecting on my college experience and like, how big of an impact it had or like how much pressure I put on myself during that time. And yeah, it's just interesting to look back and be like, what could I maybe have been more like dynamically involved about? I feel like all the time I think about, yeah. I mean, yeah, but yeah, it sounds like for your situation, like you were kind of in the driver's seat there, which, which would probably be good for like activating (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely good, but I, I can't really do anything without giving it all my effort and, and school was something it's, it's good until it's, you know, it's not because sometimes it's just not necessary and you need to protect your peace. (laughs) Like I was really not good at compartmentalizing at least entering college. And even now I struggle with it compartmentalizing. Like if I bomb this one exam, I'm still going to be fine. Like I couldn't accept that I didn't need to do amazingly at every little thing I did in college in order mm. to make the most of my experience. Like I, I couldn't understand that for a while. I eventually, I think, got it down in a way that worked for me where I was able to a bit more like the night before an exam, like I could go to yoga, I could hang out with my friends and not feel like I was like prioritizing the wrong yeah. things, like not putting in the most possible effort. 
Whereas starting college, that was a huge issue for me. Even now though, I think I, I mean, work is like a whole new version of that where I have to relearn those lessons about Mm -hmm. balance. I struggle with it. Do you feel like you've gotten better with time? Just like as time goes on. And I mean, also like these years are so formative. I feel like for us, you learn a lot. I feel like I have gotten better with time, but when I think I have it down as far as a routine that makes sense for me in a particular job, I mean, with a particular person that I work with, whether it's like a full-time job or a freelance gig, everything changes the second I think I have it down, I swear. I mean, it's definitely like a self-fulfilling thing where I, I'm i like turning it into that. Like That's the narrative I'm creating, but it does to a degree so much has changed so fast in terms of my like career. And I'm like, I've had in the last calendar year or since this time last year, April of 2022, I've had four full-time jobs and like more side gigs and freelance gigs than I can count. And so it's like, it's, it's been hard to accept that that type of balance and routine is different for every single thing I've done. Like it's, it's really hard for me to transfer in some ways, the lessons I learned from one to the other. And that's something I'm really working at. Like getting into a new job and you're like, I need to make sure I'm taking it super seriously. So they know that I am serious. Mm-hmm. So I don't get laid off in theory, you know, that's like the deep down kind of fear. And it's yeah. hard to be like, to be, go back to being the same person you were when you were like feeling really on top of things at your previous thing where you like knew the lay of the land. It feels in some ways, like starting all over, which I don't think it should. Mm. But the the more I get comfortable with change, the, the easier it's getting to recognize, like, this is temporary. And it is going to, if not right now, feel better. It's It's going to be manageable in the foreseeable future. And that should give me some peace. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that would be difficult to manage all those things, which is another reason why I'm like so interested to hear more because I am in Silicon Valley and I'm surrounded by people who are in tech jobs. So we work our job and then we like enjoy life or we do whatever on the side. And so, yeah, I can imagine it's like so different. So I'm really interested to hear. And I would imagine that would be hard to manage. You'd have to like really learn your own skill set. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, I don't think any school could have prepared me for it. It's very much like trial by fire. Uh, yeah. And having to trust yeah. your own instincts. I've thought about this just being from Michigan. Do you feel like being from Michigan and now living in New York City for almost three years, mm-hmm. do you feel like comparing the two, like, do you feel like growing up in Michigan limit you in any way about like believing what you're capable of or like knowing what opportunities are out there for you? I think it almost made me more, I wouldn't say it made me more, maybe it did make me more ambitious. I think there were definitely things that I couldn't have known as far as the way certain industries work and New York is going to kick your ass and let the job like on its own to handle and figure out. But I think that comes with growing up anywhere and moving somewhere more than it is about Michigan in particular being, you know, the whole like Midwest, but where I grew up, at least, you know, I grew up in Bloomfield. I'm sure you're, you've met more than enough people at Michigan from Bloomfield, that area. 
outside of Detroit where it's like very, it's not what people think of when they think of Michigan, at least in my mind, in a lot of ways in some for sure. But I think it was easier for me to romanticize for sure. The life that I have now while I was there, yeah. I don't know if I would have the same way had I grown up somewhere like New York city, somewhere like Los Angeles, just a larger metropolitan, even somewhere like Miami. I'm like, I don't know if I would have had the same ambitions if I had grown up surrounded by certain things in terms of fashion being a huge interest of mine, just the arts, like things that I, I felt like I had to seek out on my own. I, I, if I had grown up among them, I don't know if I would have taken such a, a particular special interest in them. And maybe I would have maybe not taken for granted, but been like, yeah, that's just something that exists in my life. And that's great. But I want to do something that's different than what I grew up surrounded by. I think that was a large driver in everything that I'm interested in is on one hand wanting to, to just learn more about the world beyond what I grew up around. And again, like if I had grown up somewhere where it's like the world is at your fingertips, I have no idea who I'd be. I'm like so much of my personality is based on wanting to learn more. So true. Yeah, yeah. That's such a good point. I don't know why I've never thought about that, but I, like, yeah, like weird. Yeah. So much of my, like where I get my confidence is like being from Michigan and being able to like go experience a crazy city and just like being able to conquer it in a way, like in my own way, if you will, like yeah. make a life. Yeah, I wouldn't say I had like humble beginnings by any means, but it is cool to think about. It's definitely something that makes me feel good. And Michigan is funny. It's like, I don't, when people to ask where I'm from, I will say Michigan and they'll be like, oh, but then sometimes I'll, depending on the person, I'll say I'm from a suburb of Detroit and that it's interesting. The response is different. Oh, what it, is it? How is it different? I think if people are like, okay, this is not like a girl who grew up shucking corn. <laughs> yeah, it's wild that people think that. Like, I really, really do. don't understand. <laughs> I'm like, what? The yeah. question of like, like where you grew up, was it rural? Like, I don't know why. That just sounds so extreme. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, I was written into yeah, a little I mean, house yeah. in a book for sure. People really, yeah. but it's like if they don't know any different and they grew up somewhere like this. That's true. I, That's I wouldn't true. know anything about this area if I didn't live here now, you know? That's true. It's so just wild. crazy how, yeah, like your background affects so much. And yeah, I do wonder like if that's what like San Francisco is like the city I have experience with. Like if I grew up here, how would I be different? Or like, what would I want? Like, what would my goals be? It's weird. Yeah. Think about. But it is also something I think about even in terms of my parents and like what their goals were able to be relative to how they grew up and how we were maybe, I mean, I can't speak for you, but I have a feeling you resonate like, like us being able to have certain goals because our parents had other goals, you know, like it's, it feels like a generational thing of no matter where you are geographically being able to broaden the horizons of what's possible for your kid. And I feel like that, like being in the generation we're in as well, I feel like a lot of our parents' generation, like people who, were kids in like the 70s, 80s, like 60s, 70s, 80s, even like really wanted their kids to be able to no, like no matter where they grew up, like the world was just becoming more global as it was. I don't know. It's like, I think about 
like my dad, for example, is a doctor and his Mm -hmm. dad's a doctor and his dad immigrated with him from Argentina when my dad was a baby. And it's like, I know the reason they came here was so that my dad could decide what he wanted to do. And part of the reason why my dad was a doctor, I mean, beyond being passionate about it is so that I could think about what I want to do, regardless of where I grew up in terms of geography. So it's Mm -hmm. like, I I think that definitely plays a, a huge role as well. You know, like when I think about being from Michigan, I can't think about it without thinking about my family background as well. Like it's, it's, inextricably linked. I mean, I think for anyone, the place that you're from is like, you can't think about it without thinking about your upbringing and your family, like intertwined and it totally shapes your opinion of it. That's really interesting. And I'm glad you shared that piece of background because yeah, I didn't remember you had talked about that, but I didn't quite know. I've never really thought about like my parents doing what they could so that we could have our pick but in a way like yes they did in a different way it might not have been like they were yeah like they were very focused on our education and that was a priority for them and they've always spoken about that so yeah in a way kind of similar but to pivot a little bit since college like kind of making your way in the big city what were your initially like your your goals? Like did you what were you going for after college? I don't know that I had very specific goals. I think fair enough. No, right. I think I was like, I want to, and I honestly think I was too embarrassed to set specific goals for myself. I didn't want to be like, I want to write a cover story before I turn 30 because I didn't want to be like setting myself up for failure for one. And for two, prioritizing things that are more about vanity than they are about like the actual achievement. Because I mean, like with that, for me, I think it would have been more about like, I, I'm I'm so scared of like coming off as vain to myself that I like steer clear of anything that makes me, it's a huge thing in therapy. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. like, does this make me a narcissist or does it just mean not that I care about my future? Like, or like yeah. something that I, like if you're proud of something you've done, like just being like, oh, I'm proud of myself. Like not yeah. that, not feeling vain or like narcissistic. Yeah. And I still struggle with that. I really do. But I knew that I wanted to live out here. I knew I wanted to work in journalism or something related peripherally. And I knew I wanted, if I could make a living off of that comfortably and still have a life outside of work, like I really wanted work-life balance. I think that a lot of my internships in college scared me and out of wanting like the girl bossy, like work never ends when you do what you love. Like you don't work a day in your life. If you love what you do, like it's not true. It's just not like how, um, how did your internships make you think that I watched the people above me fall into it. And a lot of them seemed very unhappy. Not everybody. Mm. So it was like, these are the people whose lives I said I wanted they seem so unhappy. Like that's, uh, it seems just horrible. And I mean, the way they treated me as well sometimes would be reflective of that. And I would always know that it wasn't personal, but it scared me. It would be like, I don't want to be the kind of person who is gossiping about an intern because they don't have any other way to blow off steam and they're treated so badly by their bosses. And, and, but work is the only thing they have 
that they feel proud of because that's what they were told to do and what they were so excited about. So their Instagram is covered with super cool things from work that are so exciting, but the reality is they're barely making ends meet and they're unhappy. It's wow, just yeah, like, that would be hard for me to process. It was really hard. I, I don't know if I would have maturely, as maturely, like understood what was going on there. What were these internships also for context? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of them were fashion related. I interned at a fashion PR firm after my freshman year of college. And that was where I think I, I got the most like crash course. I don't want to have to deal with the things that these poor mm-hmm. people do. Mm-hmm. People treating it like it's the end of the world for pretty much everything. I had one of my bosses, someone snitched that I was crying in the bathroom one day. And uh, one of my bosses pulled me aside and like threatened to fire me. It was an unpaid college credit internship. I was working 12 hour days, like most days. It was one of those things where the mentality was so related to that whole girl boss, like work is the best thing in your life. It was so, you should be so grateful to be here. How dare we find you? crying in the bathroom, you know? And it's sort of like, I I was scared of, this is so hindsight though. At the moment I was, I was just, I felt horrible. You know, I was like, I'm not cut out for anything in life, whatever, whatever. It was not like a mature analysis in the moment, but I would say maybe months or even a year later, I was able to be like, I so deeply fear becoming that person because I don't blame them as individuals, you know, like Someone has that kind of stuff is taught. Like you're not taught that or you're, you don't you're not born believing that your fashion job is life or death and that everyone should be treated poorly because you had to be. No, that's taught. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I need to make sure that I mean, I want to be passionate about what I do because I don't want work to be insufferable. But I need to make sure I have a sense of self outside of it. And things that fulfill me outside of it, I think it really, like, it showed me some things of, like, what not what not to do, but a little. It definitely taught me early on in my career that I wanted work-life balance. Interesting. Wow, yeah, because I think, in a way, like, knowing myself, knowing very little about fashion, yeah. there have been times when I've idolized that industry. And it's really easy, still- too. Yeah, and I still don't, like, really know. But from the little that I've heard, yes, like what you said, (laughs) it's more about, like, the look of things and just being able to, like, dress well. Yeah, but, like, the money that you're making is, like, very low. Garbage. Um, It's it's most of the time not livable. Not most, but it's it's a lot of that. It's a lot of you should feel grateful to be here because 100 other girls would want your spy. More yeah. so than my friend literally wrote a book called a hundred other girls about that. Like being told that so often throughout her life and her career. Like it's you just, agree. it's really good. It's a fiction book, but it's, it's based on true events. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. That's tough though. Cause it's like, how do you be involved in fashion? If like, this is what you have to deal with, like sustainably, Definitely. it's just not going to work. Taking a side step in a lot of ways. You see these things on social media and it feels so like I'm beating a dead horse to be like, it's not real. It's not real. But for a lot of people, their livelihood depends on making it seem like it's real, making it seem like their life really is this cool. And 
because they want to pivot to being an influencer and that's where they're going to make more money than they do in their fashion job. For a lot of people, they, they make more money off of their brand deals than they do off their salary jobs. Like I know many people who do that and it's, it's kind of a natural segue sometimes because people who work at fashion brands and fashion magazines, whatever, have always kind of been personalities in terms of their industry, at least. So social media is kind of like a, I've watched a lot of people pivot and people don't want to put that at risk by not making the most of the, the cool glitzy stuff their job offers them. It's like their job gives them access to the cool stuff that they can put on their social media and eventually monetize that way. And it's like, I don't knock wow. anyone for anyone, but it's really, it's, it's so hard to remember sometimes too. I'm like, my friend looks so hot in that picture. That looks so fun. But she just texted me saying she's having the worst time. And it's like, yeah, I can, I can literally get that text and still feel like, but maybe I wouldn't be having the worst time if I were there. Like it's, it's hard. Mm, I'm really glad you shared that. I think that's really interesting. And I have thought a lot about social media in the past year. And when I see influencers who are just given like clothes and trips and all this stuff, my challenge with it is to look at that and be like, I should go for that because that life is going to give me more flexibility. Yeah. It's hard to be like, if you can do it, why not? Yeah. I think that in one of my current jobs, I I've been on the other side where I've been hiring influencers to make content, branded content for an account. And I'm like, I'm paying you $45,000 for three reels. That's crazy. But that's what I'm saying. The scary thing is for them, they have to charge that because they could be out of fashion tomorrow. We could all just stop caring about them tomorrow. You know is what that I mean? How they feel? Is that I think how they so. think? I think I think so. Like it, it really is like they need to milk the shit out of every opportunity as it comes up because this shit is so fleeting. Hmm. You get canceled for something you didn't even say. Like someone could doctor tweet. And if it gets out to enough people before you're able to set the record straight, you could get your, a lot of your shit taken away. Like you, you have, it's the most unreliable. It's, it's just, it's sustainable for such a small group of people. And even they don't know, like it could all end tomorrow. Yeah, that's true. It's like something that if I were them and that might seem challenging is like, who do I look to for guidance? Like you're kind of the trendsetter here. So that's scary. That's a a really good point is like, you don't have that career structure that a lot of people in a traditional career path do. It's like, are you looking to your manager? I mean, your manager's making money off of you. Yeah. Are you looking to your agent who's making money off of you? Are you looking to, a fellow influencer who does ultimately have things to gain potentially from you. Like when your person is your income, it's like everybody could have an ulterior motive in talking to you. It's like celebrity too, you know? Yeah. But then it's not because it's like, what are you famous for? Exactly. Famous for being famous. famous. And it's like, Exactly. You don't have a certain level of security that comes with traditional celebrity. Mm-hmm. I, it's really, 
I think about it a lot. I'm like, I could do it for sure. Yeah. But, but. I, I feel like in big cities, everyone knows somebody in that space personally, like at least one person who's made it their full-time career. And I know a few people and the type of shit they get from people online, I, I couldn't handle. Mm. Like maybe I'd be able to, but like I couldn't handle getting death threats from strangers. I don't care how unserious they are. Like, yeah, I that's a good point. That. I think, I mean, on top of that, that's like horrifying and just scary. But also I think another thing is like, sometimes I look at social media and it's just like, like, for example, an influencer who posts about like fashion and like they go to restaurants and they, they get like gifted a meal at a restaurant or like stay at a hotel. It's like at the end of the day, you are selling things to people. You are advertising what others have created, whether it's clothes. You're not making things. Yeah. You're not creating. You're just creating content that reflects the creations of others, which I think would be hard for me sustainably. You know? And you have conscience to do at all times. Like at first you can't be choosy. A lot of the time, a lot of people can't afford to be choosy about what brand deals they take at the start. I mean, shit, Alex did a campaign for Forever 21. You know, they paid her amazing. Like, you know, she, she got insane money off of that. But the flip side is, I mean, is she someday going to be like Forever 21 morally is the worst shit in the world? I don't know if that's where her brain is, but like there's levels to that for sure. I mean, it's not to say campaign problems for sure too, but it's just very, very interesting, but it's nice to hear your your experience because it sounds like you're a little bit closer to that world. I also wanted to ask you, so you work at a company called Worthy now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's brand okay. new. Okay, and what is the premise of this company? Yeah, yeah. So Worthy's a marketing agency that was launched by a man named Miles Worthington, who is my boss. He's wonderful. He was an executive at Netflix and that's how he caught wind of me. We were there. We, we briefly crossed paths. He was there for years and he launched their audience specific social media platforms. So they have different social media platforms devoted to different audience demographics. For example, like black audience devoted account called strong black lead, where it's like, it talks all about different things that might particularly interest and empower black Americans on Netflix. And it's, it's kind of like a forum and a sounding word for that kind of content. So he got laid off by Netflix and started his own marketing agency. The focus is identity based marketing. So all the clients he takes on, he takes on under the premise of a campaign. That's for example, for Hispanic heritage month for black history month, or maybe it's just a client who wants to improve their multicultural marketing. And so I think my formal job title is like manager of audience strategy. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> Whatever. And my clients right now are HBO Max, and I am they are doing something very similar to what Miles was doing at Netflix. I'm on their Latinx social media presence, so they have different, like Netflix, different accounts devoted to different audiences, and I'm responsible for the original social content and some IRL like real life activations and some just long-term marketing strategies in terms of the Latinx audience for 
what's currently HBO Max and what will soon be Max. Love that. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, that all sounds so vague and jargony because it kind of is. Um, yeah, I know. I'm like, what is yeah. IRL activation? In real life, in real life, I said IRL and I was like, let me not. Like in person, for example, they are sponsoring a music festival in Chicago and they're going to mm-hmm. have a pop up there. So that was planned before we came on as their agency. But in the future, something like that would fall under our jurisdiction as well. Where like I would help to plan the in-person activation that's going to be marketed on their social media around empowering Latinx voices on Max and who watch Max. Okay. That's very cool that you have this job. It seems like it's tailored quite well to your experience and your interests. Do you feel like you worked your way up to this in a way? Yeah, a little bit. But at the same time, I feel like I talked my way up to this. Okay, whatever works. I mean, it's not that I didn't do the work because I definitely did. But yeah. I wouldn't have found out about this opportunity had the founder of the agency, Miles, not emailed me, like cold emailed me because he had gotten a recommendation from my old boss at Netflix saying that I would be a great fit for what he's working on. Like, that's what I mean when I say talked. Like, it, it was not a formal job application process. I didn't find him on LinkedIn. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't submit a resume. I didn't do an interview process. I like helped him to get um, a client secured for a marketing agency. You have to create a pitch for them. So we had like a huge PowerPoint proposing what our year long strategy to improve their marketing to Latinx communities on these social media platforms, what that would look like. And this was all before I was hired full time. I got paid to do that project with the agency. So he invited me on to help do that with him and a couple other people. And the goal was, if HBO likes this, they bring us on as their agency for this specific purpose. Like we only, this is the scope of our role with them. And then I bring you on full time. So it was sort of like, this is a freelance gig for now. Maybe it will turn into something more if HBO decides that the strategy we present to them is, is the direction they want to go in. I so see. yeah, it was, that was kind of my interview process, but it quite literally, it, it was a little like a test. It didn't feel that way because it was super fun and like very much yeah. the work I'm comfortable with, but yeah. So it was yeah. unworthy. And that's why it doesn't feel as, as much like I traditionally, I don't feel as much like I climbed a corporate ladder. I mean, it does seem like you worked your way up to this because your experience at Netflix kind of garnered this experience sure. in a way. I'm telling um, you, I'm like, I want to be humble. Did I work my way to it? Do I deserve this? Do I... Yeah, you did. <laughs> um, Thank you. So internalized, though. It's it's constant. I know. Yeah, and I can't. I mean, I just have like a million things to ask, but I can't help but think that for me, the unwillingness to seem vain or like narcissistic by saying that I'm proud of myself. It's like I'd rather err on the side of humility, right? So, You're in a male-dominated industry, which I'm sure is a whole different ballgame as far as thinking about perception. Yeah. It's really challenging to advocate for yourself when advocating for yourself feels narcissistic. So and when you the man in the next room would probably do it without a second thought. Like it's not comfortable. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It's crazy how that goes yeah. across countries. It's just very real. Yeah. So you, your job is focused on 
marketing towards the Latinx community? It's Latinos in the United States. I feel like it's confusing and I get it, but it's like, for example, I mean, there's Latinos in Latin America and there's Latinos in the US. That's it. So it's like people who are in okay. America predominantly marketing toward them who have heritage like mine or like something else. Okay. Okay. So I guess I want to ask you more about that. So like, how do you think you kind of shaped your own career so that you ended up in this role? And then also kind of off topic, but yes, related, like what are some challenges you feel like this community faces? Yeah. This has been something that has been interesting to me really specifically as well. Well, my whole life in certain ways, because it's an identity thing where it's always been like a part of me, but my relationship to what it means to be, my dad is Argentine. My mom is, is not um, like what it means to be identify a certain way ethnically where I am racially white. Like that whole thing has been a forever question, but in college in particular, I think it became more like you have to fill up all the surveys about who you are, your gender, your race, your ethnicity constantly. And people are constantly trying to get you to join their clubs and stuff. And you're like, I think for the first time I had to be like, like I am really interested in learning more about my background and I, and embracing certain things like growing up, I was more embarrassed about, and I didn't feel like I had anyone to talk to about, you know, in, in my schools or whatever, like just my friends, but at Michigan, it was like, there are people not a ton, but there were people who could resonate with certain things and could introduce me to other things that were actually part of the culture that was mine, but I didn't even know about, you know, like it was very, how do I navigate like having access to a bunch of new information and new people who are inviting me to be part of communities that I am part of just by existing. But like, what does it mean for me to take uh, like, what does it mean for me to take on uh, an active role in participating in these communities, especially as a white person? You know, I, I, I'm very of the belief that like, you know, ethnicity is one thing, race is another. Latin America is a geographic region. If someone is Latino, they are of that geographic region. Racially, they could be anything. There's Chinese Latinos of Chinese descent, people who grew up in Latin America, speak perfect Spanish, are Latino, but are Chinese racially. Like there's, you know, just everything like America. Like, you know what I mean? For sure. I mean, there's indigenous people as well. There's everything. So I think that I had to learn what that meant before I really got into my role and everything. But I think that's once I started thinking more critically about it, where I was able to look at my love of media and my interest in pursuing that and think about the kinds of voices and issues that I could platform with that interest. So that's kind of where I was like, I have this communications major, but I also want to do this major that explores issues related to Latinx communities in the United States as presented through my interest in media, you know? And I quite literally for my senior thesis for that second major, that social theory and practice major, I made a zine, like a magazine profiling six Latinx students in Michigan, like human interest feature stories like you'd find like a magazine profile of someone. And I, I really left it up to them to talk about the things that they felt were the most 
the issues they felt were most pressing related to their identity as Latinx people on campus at Michigan. And the variety of the things that I, I mean, that they addressed, it was so massive, so broad, but it was so interesting. And I don't know, it really reminded me that I think I was really scared to embrace that part of me for a long time in life, but to be of service to a community that I get the cool parts of without the discrimination really, you know, like, cause I, I walk in a room and I'm a white woman. So I think that was part of why I was like, I'm scared to embrace this thing when I don't deal with any of the obstacles pretty much that come with it mm. to be able to like be of service to people who do deal with those obstacles, I think has been where I found my place. And it's worked out really well that it's happened to align with my career interests regarding media. So with this Netflix job, it was very much, they saw me naturally talking about certain things on my social media related to Latino issues, Latinx issues. They saw me writing articles freelance for different publications, amplifying those issues in ways that were culturally relevant to young people in the U.S., not only other Latinx people, but people who might not have any familiarity. And they were like, you'd be a good fit for this. And my role in Netflix was very similar to what I'm doing now with HBO. It seems like this came about this like impact driven type of social media work as it applies to Latinx people that sort of came about through other people resonating with my, what I was talking about on social media, even though I wouldn't call myself an influencer by any means, it just happened that people in my network were connected to jobs that require the types of things they saw me doing organically in terms of bringing light to certain conversations. Like, do you know about this like statistic inequity between Latino women and like non-Latino white women? Do you know about this thing? That's like, just, I would just naturally talk about certain things that seem to be a fit for jobs that people in who were following me happened to know about. And so it was really just like a, a natural thing of this job is out here. You would be good for it. Particularly, I don't know if you even encounter this at all in software engineering. It really just in tech at all, but they're like, Oh, you're the Gen Z too. So it's cool that you have that perspective because we need someone to have that desperately. Yeah. Lost without me. Oh God. Like, it's like crazy to think about like certain things. I'm like, I have to explain. I have to explain certain. Oh, um. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure it's like a a really big thing in media in software engineering. Like, you know, you'll get comments just because of your age in any part of life. I think with Gen Z up and coming, but in software engineering, not not really because you know, knowing how to code is across generations. <laughs> it transcends language. It transcends mm-hmm. age. <laughs> yeah. Um, And there's not necessarily something I can contribute because I'm like more woke or more like involved in the media. Even if they don't recognize it right now, I feel like there probably is, even when it comes down to company culture. That's true. And like, sometimes I feel like people hire me just because I was a pleasure to have in class as a kid. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, I don't know if I, I definitely do work hard and people like who have worked with me would probably laugh to hear me say this because I'd work way too hard sometimes, but sometimes I'm like, they hired me because I'm a lot of fun. <laughs> You're a personality hire? Yeah, I think I'm a personality hire, but I also know I'm not. Like I definitely wow. am not. 
but mm-hmm. I like to like think I'm a personality hire. I like to, I like yeah. to think. That's a good quality. Hey, if you can do both, then listen. I also think awesome. that half of media is being a personality hire. Because what are you supposed to do? <laughs> Not put your personality into the things that you create. Because if you don't, no one's going to resonate. Like no one wants to feel like a robot's talking to them. We have enough of those. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's really interesting. And that's something that, again, like I worry about because when I see careers like what you have that are more creative and that definitely is attractive to me, um, there's a lot of reasons why I'm like not willing to like leave what I'm doing right now. But like I've always felt that having a personality is not a priority in my industry. And in a way... Yeah, in a way, it's like a good thing. I think I used to like it because, you know, you're not going to be judged based on whether or not you're, you're like cracking jokes or whatever. I feel like I'm just like generalizing a lot, but it's very real. Like feeling like you have to schmooze someone, like you have to like put on a front to make sure they like you and that you can get the promotion and X Y Z. Yeah, and I used to like. I remember growing up that like if you just knew the concepts and could perform well in like technical assessments, then like you would be like a top candidate or whatever. But yeah. anyway, now I'm like I'm concerned. <laughs> like I don't know. There's no need for me to really be a personality at work. So I think about that. Sometimes. Yeah, that's that's wild. But it's also like I'm sure there's certain things that you might not even think of as being your personality because they're just so inextricable. You not me turning on do not disturb and slack still, please. Okay. I'm turning it off. Cool. All right. What you said about what you did at Michigan, I think is really cool. And I love that you were able to embrace that at such a young age. I think it felt old. I felt like I was, I felt like I was catching up, like embracing that side of my identity. Really? I mean, well, because, you know, yeah, it's all perspective, though. You never, <clears throat> when you're talking to people who grew up being super proud of their cultures, it's a little bit like, damn. Yeah. And then also what you said about how you're a white woman, but you, like, want to be involved in this community. And yeah. your way that you can do that is through service and, like, yeah. advocating for them and connecting with them and, like, learning and embracing Right. what you learn from them. I think that's like really beautiful. And that makes a lot of sense that like you are where you are now. Yeah. I think it's like ideal that you have managed to use your skill set and also embrace like this part of your identity. So that's yeah, awesome. Definitely complicated sometimes. I'm like, can I say this? Can I, I don't know. A lot of, again, though, wanting to appear humble being the biggest driver of like half of almost everything I do. <laughs> Like making sure that I see yeah. that. Yeah. Having accomplished what you have. Like I know it seems like you have a lot of things that you have done so far in media. Do you ever get anxiety about like the success you're encountering? Or do you kind of just like let it wash over you or somewhere in between? Oh man. I I am the first person to be like, I don't deserve this. And it's sad because something that I've been dealing with a lot or talking about a lot in therapy has been, I'll say something about myself and my therapist will be like, okay, great. 
would you say that to your best friend if she was doing the same thing? Like, would you be telling your best friend she doesn't deserve that incredible opportunity that came her way after years of hard work? And the answer is always no. Like, I would never, because I would never think it. It's not only that I wouldn't say it, I would just never think to diminish the accomplishments of people I care about, even people I don't care about. Like, I'd be like, oh, she probably earned that shit. Like, for example, Adidas mm-hmm. flew me out to Coachella, and that had pretty much nothing to do with my career. <laughs> like, 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 it did, but it didn't. Like, I haven't really done anything for them. And I was like, everyone else here has done something that's like benefited Adidas or they have like a social media presence. They're going to post a paid partnership. I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? Like, I have no business. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But then it's like, okay, I would never tell my friend that she had no business getting something incredible after working her ass off forever. Like, yeah. what? It's challenging. And it's like, can we at least meet somewhere in the middle, like not be super cocky, not be super like, I'm not deserving of this because sometimes it's like, I see the ways that this mentality is literally holding me back. Yeah. Um, Yes, exactly. It's keeping me from taking risks that might risks that I'm like almost certain aren't even risks that I'm almost certain will pay off. But I'm like the, uh, the feeling, the fear of being uncomfortable to advocate for myself in certain settings or to like, it's, have you seen that thing where SZA reads her own tweets out loud? No. It's like, um, it's I don't know where the hell it came from. There's like an Instagram account. I think she runs. And there's one that's like, your fear of looking stupid is holding you back. Oh. And I, I honestly think that it's a little bit to your fear of one person perceiving you as something you're not. Your fear of one person is, your fear of one person perceiving you as conceited or cocky is holding mm-hmm. you back. And that person probably doesn't know you. You probably don't give a shit about them. But the idea that yeah. someone might think that about you is worse than not taking a risk that could benefit you in a million ways. Like, Yeah, it's like when you break it down, it's like just wanting the approval of every single person, which as we have come to know probably at this point is not the way to go. And in ways in life, like, I do dispel that belief and I'm like, okay, like, no, like not everyone needs to like me, but then there's still ways in which I don't fully understand how that mentality is still kind of ruling like my actions. Exactly. It's, it's not conscious at all. And you can know intellectually that you know better than to try to get everyone to like you. Cause it's a, there's no way to win. Like, but you still play into it for sure. Yeah, but yeah. I have a hard time success. I even just I, I think it's the same side of me that has a hard time like inviting people over or like inviting people to a birthday party of mine. It's like you're all coming here for me. Like celebrating something I've done is like you're all celebrating for me. I'm celebrating for me. Like it just feels like it's like is this even necessary? Like you should all save your energy myself. I don't know how to explain it. It's like something about it being me means that it's like, I'm an exception to the part of me that believes everyone should be celebrated. I'm like, but I don't need that. No. Yeah. I I can't point where that came from, but. I definitely resonate with that in one way or the other. And do you, do you know the influencer Serena Kerrigan? 
I actually was at her birthday party last year. Okay, and I kind of knew that because I think I saw something. <laughs> I saw something. I think you reposted a picture of like you in the background. So I was like, yeah, she's she been commenting on my Instagram post, but doesn't follow me. And I'm like, this is interesting. This is a really interesting oh. dynamic. Anyway, yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. So I followed her a couple of years ago and like, we were talking about like the whole best friend thing. Like, would you say that to your best friend? And I think she's very interesting. I think I just actually went to her live show this awesome. year, which was cool. But I think like sometimes seeing someone who's so confident, who has helped me become more confident, I'm still uncomfortable at her confidence. Yes. And, it's and I feel badly movie. about that. But mm-hmm. It makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. I think so. that's a very, very universal feeling in some ways. My mom and I talk about it a lot. She, you know, is still trying to kind of get rid of certain thoughts she has around women needing to be like modest in certain ways. And she'll be like, why is my immediate thought to get uncomfortable when I see a woman wearing something that's like showing off her body? Like, why? I can know that I think she looks great and feel like I love that people are setting an example this way, but why am I still uncomfortable? Like, what do I have to learn to get rid of that? Where did it come from? Is it me? Is it just what I, you know, like how conditioned am I to believe that discomfort is the only way to react to a woman doing whatever it is? It's yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want to feel that way, but but it's a real thing. The first step is to recognize that you're feeling it. Cause I think a lot of people are in denial and that's not going to help anything. Right. That delays the process of resolving it. So yeah, but oh my gosh, really good conversation. But like, I have more questions and I do no, not. Keep going, keep going. I'll let you know. Can you please tell me a little bit more about your role in producing the podcast going yeah. mental? And just also like a little background on what that is. I feel like you would probably know how to explain it better than myself. And then like just what is involved in producing a podcast. Like at this point, I am, my interest has peaked, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. It's definitely a, um, a weird, I, I don't think it's at all what I thought producing a podcast was. I'm not the producer who, the I'm not the central audio. I don't produce audio. So I'm like, to be clear, I'm not the one who's physically chopping up the audio, but I have a hand in, first, let me start what the podcast is. I'm like, give me a test. Going Mental is a podcast that was launched by Eileen Kelly, who's a content creator who got really famous for bringing awareness to certain undiscussed issues involving sex ed. She was like one of the first people to really pioneer talking about those things on social media in the 2010s. And she ended up having some mental issues that led her to um, enroll in a mental hospital, came out and was like, why did it take my whole life and enrolling in a mental hospital to learn certain things that should be accessible to everybody? So she started this podcast, Going Mental, where the whole point is to bring on people from a super, super broad range of I mean, expertises, walks of life to share things that they either wish they knew about caring for their mental health that they didn't until a certain point, 
things that they think might be gatekept, but they've had access to, or even just talking through their own experiences, giving listeners an opportunity to, it's hard to explain verbally, but giving listeners an opportunity to think about their own mental health after hearing about someone else's journey in life. You know, it's like everything is related to mental health at some level without even having to explicitly say it. We do have pretty broad range of guests. It goes from, you know, doctors, psychiatrists, experts in their field to celebrities, to very controversial people. And it's always towing a line. It's something that, you know, sometimes I'll push back on a guest or whatever, but Eileen, our host is very adamant and it's her podcast, very adamant about having people that can be learned from, even if we don't agree with them. But there's definitely a fine line that we try to tow between giving those people a platform and gleaning what we can from them to learn about ourselves. And yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to decide at what point you're giving someone too much of a platform versus really be realizing that you can learn from people of all walks of life. We've had everyone from like the head of OCD at the mental hospital Eileen was at to Emily Redakoski to Lil Yachty to the director of Selena Gomez's documentary, which is super clearly and overtly mental health focused. It's, it's a really cool wide variety. And my role is I reach out to the guests. I pitch guest ideas. I'm the one who arranges all the recording studio dates and times, you know, like I'm sending all the calendar invites all the follow-ups. I'm uploading everything to YouTube. I am helping to chop up, not physically chop up the audio, but like decide what parts should be omitted. If something needs to be moved to a different part of the podcast, I do drafting of show notes and titles. I do most, I do episode outlines sometimes less so now, but I was doing a lot more like truly outlining the types of questions we wanted to ask So I'm like, everything behind the scenes I have a hand in, it's fun. It's kind of like being a a ghost writer, but like Eileen is also writing. So it's like being a ghost (laughs) co-writer. I see. That is interesting to think about writing, being involved in podcasts. I mean, yes, it is like the questions can change the trajectory of the conversation so much. So it it is like really important. And especially when you have a guest that like is so well known, it feels really like or controversial. That's a good point. It can feel really like you want to get these questions like good. So yeah, totally. How did you happen upon this role? It's wild. I, I got laid off by Netflix mid May last year and a friend of mine, what were you doing for them? Sorry. No, you're fine. I was running a pretty much similar to what I'm doing now with HBO. I was helping with their Latinx social media outreach pretty much. Okay. They had a separate account for that kind of engagement. So I got laid off and a friend of mine DM'd me the Instagram story of Eileen, who's the founder and host of the podcast, saying she was looking for someone to help on the podcast. And I had known of Eileen for a while. I didn't follow her at that time, but I actually interviewed her for like an article in college, like freshman year or in high school. I don't even know ages ago but I was like oh I remember this girl like I I know her brand well like I know I could be really helpful and I'm not looking for a full-time job just yet so maybe I could do this on the side with some stuff so I reached out we hit it off I helped her on a project for Snapchat that she did that was like 
a little Snapchat video series talking about things she's learned from the particular kind of therapy she does. It's really cool. And she was like, I love working with you. I loved working with her. So she brought me on to be more involved with the podcast. And almost a year later, we're here. Wow. Oh, really wild. Very it's cool. When I used to follow in high school, it's like kind of crazy. Yeah, that's awesome. What's your favorite thing about this part of your of your work in particular? It feels very much like something I'd be pursuing in some way, even if I weren't being paid for it. So to be paid for it, even though it's far from my primary source of income, and to be doing it with someone who already has a built-in platform is really awesome. You know, because it's like, I always worry that I'm shouting into the void because I am a lot of the time. But with her, I know that we're not just by virtue of her having 400,000 Instagram followers and more people who actually watch things on her Instagram and read things she posts. Like we've been downloaded over a million times. Like we get over a hundred thousand monthly downloads. We get X, Y, Z things that I'm like, this is a super cool opportunity to put things out there that need to be out there. And that's yeah, incredible. It's, it's, thank you. It's it's really exciting. And it's also like, I'm learning a lot about whether I'd want to pursue certain things for myself in terms of what I want to, what I want to start a podcast, what I want to, I don't know, like she's been working on some other projects that I've been helping her with. And I'm like, would I want to start something like that? Would I want to help her write a book if she writes a book? Like what I want co-authoring credits what I like, it's, it's definitely one of those things where it feels like I am brainstorming with a friend about something that we're passionate about. And it just happens to be going to a massive network of people. It's yeah. Cool. I mean, that is just, wow. It's, it's definitely yeah. like it, saying that though makes it sound super idyllic and it, it is really awesome, but it's definitely like sometimes shit hits the fan. I've definitely been reamed out by a couple publicists before. And I'm like, all I did was publish exactly what they said. Interesting. And they signed the contract. Like, mm, what can I tell you? But getting to learn and grow alongside someone who has certain experiences that I don't, you know, being less like a, a semi-public figure, but also us being similar, close in age. She's 27. So it's like, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like I have to explain things that in certain work settings I have to explain to people. I love that. It sounds like through this opportunity, you're exposed to a lot of different things that you might be interested in pursuing one day. I think exactly to have, have that in a capacity in which you're also like, either you're able to manage it on top of your income or you are paid for it in some way. Like right. it's super valuable. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. I need to listen. Okay, so I also need to ask you about your experience as a freelance journalist. And okay, so follow-up questions. What is involved in being a freelance journalist? Like, how do you get gigs? Like, do you advocate for yourself? Like, are you referred? Um, And then also, what have been some of the most interesting experiences that you've done? Yeah, so I would say as far as getting gigs and stuff, it's very much, I think of an article idea and I send it to an editor. I don't write the article. I send the idea 
loosely outlined in an email and the editor is like, yes or no, or they give me some suggestions on how the idea could be tweaked to fit their publication better. That has kind of evolved. It used to be a lot harder for me to get ideas approved by people because it was like, they didn't know me. I didn't have a lot of experience to show them. If I was introducing myself for the first time, you know, I didn't have a lot of articles to hyperlink back to that I'd written. It was really just like people going out on a, a limb to trust that I could deliver something good or at least something they could edit earlier on. And it's built up into a network of people who I've worked with many times before. So it's like, if I think of an article idea, I'm like, oh, so-and-so at Refinery29 would be so down if I sent this to her. So let me send it to her. And then occasionally they'll, editors will come to me with articles that they need someone to write and they think I'd be a good fit for, like articles that are going to be written no matter what. Yeah. So that's kind of the basis. And it's, it was definitely a much larger chunk of my income over the past year until I started this newer job in April. It was more like a lot of my income was from freelance writing and it's very much paid on an assignment by assignment basis in most cases. And yeah, I, are you comfortable sharing what the most you've made from an article is? Yeah, probably like $2,000 from an article. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, I will say that articles, there's something called branded content where a brand will collaborate with a magazine on a series of articles, for example, that are related to a certain topic that ties into the brand. It's it's like a, a form of paid ad. And they have a much larger budget for those articles than they do for like the, the cooler articles. So like I wrote an article about eczema, like, okay, for Refinery29, specifically looking at the ways that Latinas are impacted by eczema because this brand that specializes in eczema care gave them a huge budget to talk about these kinds of things. And of course it's disclosed in the article, like this is a sponsored article from XYZ, but I got a thousand dollars for an article that normally like had it not been branded would probably have been like a $300 article. Um, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very much like money is where the advertisers are as always. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of my articles have been paid the least. Okay. And how long does it, I mean, I feel like this is going to be different, but like how long would an article like that take you to write? It really depends. Yeah. It depends if I'm, the big thing is reaching out to sources. So if I have to reach out to interview three people for an article, a lot of it depends on their schedule. Mm. A lot of the articles that I turn around, even with like two or three sources though, it's like my due date is usually like one and a half to two weeks from when I get assigned it. If it's something that requires research. But it also depends if it's a topic that's super timely in that moment. And we need to be really like proactive about publishing it while the moment is still hot. People are still talking about it. Like there was an article I wrote a few years back about someone was accused of copying, like a musician was accused of copying a smaller musician's song. And I needed to interview people about how they felt about it, like listeners of both musicians. And it was like very much, people are talking about this today. They might not be in three days. It's going to be a quicker article, shorter, Mm. but we need it by tomorrow. And it's a better rate. You get paid better when that happens for sure. Oh, interesting. It's totally dependent Um, on the scope of what you're writing. Definitely. Is, um, 
And once an article is out, do you think about like how it performs or like, is there any way to measure that? Or is it just like, I'm lucky that I don't really have to think about it because I'm on the field. But if I were an editor at one of these publications, they think about traffic, you know, they think about clicks. And there are a lot of tools that these publications use. When I used to work, I worked at a magazine publisher and we had a tool where you could see there was like a temperature sensor, how far down people scroll in an article. So it was like articles where they scroll to the bottom that tended to be viewed as performing better. Obviously, if advertisers got clicks through the articles, that's helpful, even if it's just an ad in the margin. And the amount of time people spend on a page, that tends to be pointed toward indicative of success because just it points toward more future traffic and and the traffic being more meaningful to the audience. I see. I don't really um, have to say that. <laughs> yeah, but I that would not in theory, like, would this kind of article perform based on what I've seen be popular on Instagram from this magazine? What I've heard from the editor, like, editors will say to you, like, if something performs really well, like, in terms of, like, if you Google a certain topic and your article is the first thing to come up for that topic, like, that's really big, for example. Mm, I see. Is it stressful like when you said the majority of your income was from freelance until you started this job is it stressful managing that like I feel like that's yeah it is <laughs> um, it really was. as really more what was helpful is that after I got laid off a lot of editors I had worked with historically were like you're the first person I'm thinking about for assignments so I had kind of a guarantee that I would get certain assignments each month like a couple articles from this editor, a couple articles from that editor, X, Y, Z. So a lot of that didn't come from having to pitch ideas. If I had had to rely on my most of my income coming from things that I had come up with myself, sent into the void and hoped they got approved, like, yeah, that would have been a lot. It was still I a lot, see. but yeah. I see. That sounds stressful for sure. Yeah, I did have like this gig with the podcast, just steady, you know, steady source of income. I had mm-hmm. this gig TikTok for a shoe brand and that was steady income as well. So I think if I hadn't had either of those like guaranteed sources of income on the side, it would have been more stressful too. And it was super stressful at first. Mm-hmm. I think I guess I, I think I got used to knowing that I was always going to be okay because I continued to prove that to myself. Like I needed to just like get through a couple months of it and know that I was going to be okay by experiencing it in order to believe it moving forward. Yeah. Are you comfortable sharing how much you make with a podcast? Yeah. I make a thousand a month. I was making 2000 a month, but my scope of my role has narrowed a little bit just because we're in a kind of a fluctuating moment. I mean, I cap my hours at like eight to 10 a week. I do very much less than I used to, but it used to be two at the peak or looking to get the podcast involved with a new podcast network. And when that kind of thing happens, there's going to be more income with it. So it's like that could change. And then I would do a little bit more work, but like for now it's like Eileen, who I work with is like, this is not your top priority. And I get that like any help you're willing to give me, I appreciate it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for sharing. Of course. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, so at this point, how would you say your income is distributed um, amongst all opportunities? Like 90%, 85, 85% my full-time gig now. 
Okay. So my full-time gig, I make a hundred, which was definitely quite a bargaining, you know, like I had to fight for that. And I'm really glad I did. Good. Yeah. Good. And I mean, my boss wanted me to fight for it. Like he was very receptive. And then the thousand a month from the podcast tentatively. Mm-hmm. And then anywhere from, it really varies. Some months I'll do nothing freelance writing. Maybe not nothing. Well, when I, when I was at Netflix, it would be like some months I would do nothing freelance writing wise. Cause I didn't need to for my income, mm-hmm. but now I think I'm so used to needing to that. I'm like, my brain is constantly churning some stuff up, but I would say anywhere from generally a thousand to $5,000, which is a huge range from freelance writing per month. But that and the podcast are both pre-tax, which sucks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like my pre-tax income looks pretty good. And it, it is great. Like with the full-time gig, like that's a game changer. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I I really like to hear the numbers, especially in different industries, because it's always like a black box. Like I don't know yeah. what people are doing to live in the cities that they do. Um, yeah. I so, would are yeah. they all in credit card debt. I, I had a situation where a coworker was really transparent with me once. I won't say when I'm like, that's the one thing that I can't do in this situation. But like she was transparent about what she was making. I knew we were doing the same amount of work and she, it's something she was aware of as well. And I found out she was making 50 K more than me. Yeah. Yeah. My jaw fell to the floor when I found out. Wow. And she also was shocked to find out what I was making at that time. And so it was also, she had more experience on paper, you know, she was older, et cetera, et cetera. But it was sort of like how much of that disparity can be justified by that experience difference. I think a certain mm-hmm. level of difference in what you're paid makes sense based on experience. But if your performance is the same, then I, I felt at that time that I should have been more in the ballpark of what she was making and not 50 K less. So I, I, it was really terrifying. I had to, I had to fight. I set up a really great rationale for why I should be making more whatever, whatever. And it really felt like I was in a position where my employer at the time needed me more than I needed them. And they knew that. And so I was able to leverage it. Like I knew the team I was on wouldn't function without me. And that was my power. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I'm super, super pro sharing this stuff because it's all made up. Like, unless you're a doctor, even then it's made up. But, like, unless yeah. you're, an you're saving lives or, like, sending rockets to space, like, this shit is all fake. Yeah, and I get really scared to ask people, especially, like, I guess entrepreneurs. Like, I'm really interested to hear what they're making because I think – running your own business or running your own like multiple sources of income as a software engineer, like looking at that, it seems really glamorous and exciting. And I just want to break down and understand what's really going on financially, because realistically I might not pursue something if I'm not comfortable making what these people make. And a lot of people can't afford to make what these people make is the problem. Yeah. Like certain industries, like, you, you cannot survive unless you're getting income from some other source, which in a lot of cases is a spouse, a family member, family. Like it's, it's not realistic. 
Yeah. And if if you're paying for everything in your life, it's good to know what you might be pivoting to before you actually pivot. And yeah, like I also, I just think it's very good to share numbers so that more people are aware of like totally. what's going on. Right. And it's like, I'm lucky that I work now in an environment where that's encouraged. I mean, not everyone is as transparent as the next person. Like that's a personal choice, but the larger conversation is very like, we need to, like my boss, he started the company and he's like, I don't want to start a company where people don't feel like they can talk about these things. Like, what's the point? We don't need another company like that. To have that messaging from the top and then people can do what they wish with it below is, is really powerful. Yeah. That's awesome to hear. I mean, I still, like, I don't even think I like advocated for a raise really. Um, I retroactively in like the situation I told you about, you know, I found out what I was making. I'd been hired like a month before that. And I had to be like, Oh shit, I need my contract renegotiated. Is that allowed? Then you realize everything's allowed because it's all made up. It's yeah. all made up. <sighs> well, that's the goal, right? Like make people and yourself understand that you have more power than you think. Right. Right. And it's, it's, we're so used to bowing to these structures because there's no alternative provided. There's no education provided around it. And it's all just learning by doing and hoping that yeah. someone along the way, like, whoa, you should be asking for more, but it's like, to yeah. rely on it, it's really hard. And so living in New York city, do you feel like what you make across all your jobs is like enough for, for your lifestyle and everything? Oh yeah. Yeah. It is okay. more than enough. There was, yeah, I mean, even I was paying the rent that I'm paying now, which is a shit ton of money. I'm, I'll tell you, but it's like, mm-hmm. I'm paying $3,000. I live alone. Um, okay. Building. It's, I'm like trying to justify it to you, but it's, it's not justifiable. It's insane. But I pay it comfortably. And I was paying it comfortably. I used to make 80K and I was paying it comfortably. 80K is a lot of money, you know, like it's, you know, I, I could have been saving more with that 80K if I, I mean, then I could have been saving more than I was with 80K, but I was comfortable. I had savings. I had my investment accounts. I had my retirement accounts. I had everything I needed. Luckily, I don't have any debt. That was like the massive thing is that I don't have debt. But with 100, it's like, I'm going to save some more is my goal. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have any plans to change my lifestyle, but I mean, I'm the kind of person who most of my money goes toward rent and travel when I do travel and experiences, you know, like I food <laughs> like restaurants and like, mm-hmm. even then though, I like, I'm the one who looks for the cheap stuff on the menu. Like there's, is there a need? Probably not. I mean, it's good practice. So to pivot again, I would love to know like, what are some of the things in your career that you've accomplished so far that you're proudest of and why? I I know I emailed this to you and I, I think it's still true. I'm really proud in a more specific way of this cover story I did for Teen Vogue last year, profiling Jack Harlow. It was really, I mean, <laughs> I mean it was something it, it had taken, I had pitched that idea myself in November of 2021 and it was published in June of 2022. It was, it was a labor of love to uh, another lesson in advocate advocating for myself really i pitched the idea to a couple magazines they nixed it 
I was in touch with his publicist at the time and was like, I really think he'd be a great fit for a more female skewing magazine. I'm shocked no one's done that with him yet. This was like Chicken Chop Date had literally just come out. Or maybe I hadn't yet. It was like one of those two things. But he was becoming like the girl's guy of the internet kind of at that moment. White boy of the month, so to speak. (laughs) And the publicist was like, we think a Teen Vogue cover would be awesome if you want to pitch it. And I was like, I think that'd be awesome too. But like, okay, have fun getting that. Like, what do you mean? I had worked with Teen Vogue a lot by then but I'd never written a cover. I didn't know how their cover process worked. Usually these magazines, it's like months in advance they plan. So I was like, I don't know what your guys' plans are for covers, but I really think this would be a great one and I'd love to be considered. They were like, we love the idea. We think it'd be best for a feature right now. So I'm like, okay. Feature being not cover, just like a a long in-depth Q&A, maybe with original photos or maybe with photos that were provided by his team. February rolls around and I hear from the editor, we'd love to have you write this still, but there are talks, there are talks about him being potentially a cover star for June. So stay tuned. So basically I had to be like, I need to be the one to write that story, please. Like if, if there, you guys are talking internally about having him on the cover and I pitched that to you and I have like the paper trail, it needs to be me. And I'm very lucky that my editors there felt the same way because there are definitely what could have been a world in which they saw that idea for me. It didn't feel like a fit at the time. His star continued to rise. They thought on their own basis, like, oh, he'd be a great cover star now assigned to just someone else that they chose. Like that could have totally happened. And technically it wouldn't have been anybody's fault. I mean, I would have been pissed. I would have, but it wouldn't have really been whatever. So I'm proud that that was able to, I was able to own that idea all the way through. And then my editors were like, yes, this is hers. And that the publicist also told me that he was in talks with like the publishing managers, like of all of Condé Nast, which publishes Teen Vogue, like the head of talent recruiting there who ended up giving the green light on Jack being on the cover. He had, he was like, I want Tess to write it. And so I was like, it, it felt really good to know that people were in my corner on that that I wasn't like shouting into the void um, and interviewing him. I'm really proud of how that went because it was terrifying, <laughs> but it really broke down a massive barrier for me about asking tough questions to, to people who are put on a pedestal. I, I, it still makes me nervous, but at the end of the day, we're both doing a job and that's not to set the fun out of it. Like we both chose these jobs, but it's something he even said when I was interviewing him, like I could have shut this down. Like I could have said, no, I I say, yes, I choose everything I do. Like no one's forcing me to be here, but me. So if I were implied to you, what the fuck would that be? Like, you know? And it was like, honestly, that was really helpful for me to remember. Like you're supposed to be here. This was your idea, but it is this, it was a similar anxiety to the birthday party anxiety of like, you're all here for me. Like Jack Harlow's in the back of this restaurant right now, answering questions about sex for me. <laughs> like, yeah. it was very, I, I am the only reason this is going. I'm like, not the only reason, but I'm, I started all this shit. Like you're all here because of some shit I said. That's a yeah. lot of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm like, how it, it moved forward. And 
I'm really proud just more largely about the fact that my career has become impact driven. You know, that I've, I've been able to center, not in everything I do, not the Jack Harlow cover story. Even that though, that centered, you know, the headline is Jack Harlow knows he has black women to thank for his success. Like I, I couldn't write that article without addressing his role as a white man in a space that was not created for him especially as a white person who's in a lot of spaces that were not created for me. I'm like, I need to make sure that that's mm. the, the forefront, but I'm just proud that my work largely is centered around making people's lives better in, in an earnest way. Even if advertisers are at the heart of some of it, Yeah. even if with HBO, it's like, yeah, we want Latinos to subscribe to max, but more than that, we want, people to feel uplifted and that's why they subscribe. We want people to feel like they see a really specific an experience they thought was super specific, honored and recognized with the massive platform we have. Like mm. it's, it's really cool to have be able to like be creative about the ways that we talk about people who aren't often talked about or who don't often get to talk themselves. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, I I read a little bit of the article with Jack Harlow and I saw that you did ask some questions about like some of the poor optics that he was involved with. Yeah, and I was, the moment as well. Yeah, and I was just I mean, it, it sounds like you kind of addressed it, but like I can imagine interviewing someone with such fame and then asking tough questions could feel a little nerve wracking. Um and it takes some <laughs> the hardest thing to do was afterward i had to listen to the interview and transcribe it having to hear myself ask these questions and i know he probably didn't pick up on it but i know myself so i could hear how nervous i was was like this is so embarrassing this is so embarrassing like i can hear my voice right now oh (laughs) Yeah. yeah but i mean and while while that experience like is so cool and might have also given you anxiety like the birthday party anxiety That's i would imagine that it, yeah i i think i'm gonna yeah i'll probably use that as well <laughs> but i would imagine that it would also like build confidence like long term yes like you put yourself in a situation that scared you hardcore and at the end of the day like that's how you build confidence like you're very uncomfortable I, the um, whole finding comfort and discomfort thing, I'm like, that is, that is the dream. Yeah. And like, maybe you just never do, but you just get used to being scared and scared of, it's, scared of how much you aspire to do. It's like taking risks that you know are going to pay off. You just don't know how yet. And that uncertainty scares you. Yeah. I think that's really what it is. Even like we studied abroad together before studying abroad. I think that was one of the first times I felt it really strongly of this is terrifying. I know nobody going to this. I'm so scared. I know it's going to pay off, but I can't see mm-hmm. it yet because I, I have no way to predict how. Yeah. I don't know how it's going to go. I just know that I won't regret it. But that doesn't get rid of any of the anxiety or discomfort. Yeah. But then like, I also remember feeling about study abroad. It was like, I can't not do this. Like. Yes. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like this freaks me out, but like the 
alternative is staying somewhere where like maybe I'm not growing or just like yeah I wouldn't grow as much as I grow being in a new place with all new people that I don't know and like speaking a new language so yeah that makes it easier as well it's really like the alternative I, I think a lot of times my thought is like what's the worst case scenario if I do the thing that I'm questioning Mm-hmm. And it's like a lot of times the worst case scenario is nowhere near as bad as not even trying. And yeah. a lot of times it's related to pride, which is yeah. interesting. So about being humble, why am I so concerned about pride then? <laughs> yeah, I know. I definitely have, have some, some of that as well. Some pride situations going on. Um, okay. I have two more questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so one is you mentioned like being able to be in the room with people you've admired for years. So I just wanted to ask when you're finally able to connect with some of these people, how do you handle that? And like, what advice would you give to people in a similar situation? Because I would imagine there's some, some stress involved in that. I, it's really, it's amazing to be able to talk to people who I've admired for years in the sense, first and foremost, that we're passionate about similar things because that's usually how I found out about these people is like, who's writing the articles that I'm obsessed with. So naturally when you're in a room with them, you have things to talk about. Like you're interested in very similar things. These are people Mm -hmm. who you, you know, like if you're interested in somebody, it's probably be like, it's probably not for no reason. Like if you're interested in someone just because they're famous, like that's, that's one thing and that's fair. Like that exists, but like, you're not going to be like for lack of conversation and you're probably doing something really interesting if you're both in the room together. Even if you're just, I don't know, just hanging out. Like something really interesting probably happened to get you both there. And like that's exciting. There's probably something really exciting happening to predicate you both being there. But I also think that I have a hard time not hyper analyzing after the fact. Like, why didn't I take advantage of being in the room with that person more? Why didn't I? say more? Why didn't I plug myself or advocate for myself more? Or the reverse of like, why did I say that to them? Like, they were just trying to exist. Why did I go up to them? Why did I bother them? Like, it's, I think it goes hand in hand with the advice I would give anyone who feels like that sense of imposter syndrome in a room with anybody. You kind of have to accept that you're not going to be a hundred percent. It's okay to overthink it afterward. You don't want to get mad at yourself for having really natural human thoughts of like, did I handle that correctly? Like that doesn't make you crazy. It doesn't make you not good at it. It doesn't mean you don't belong. I think that's my automatic jump is when my brain instinctively goes to hyperanalyzing every word I said to somebody, I assume that means I'm really anxious and it means that I don't belong in these rooms because what person who belongs has these thoughts? Everybody literally everybody it's realizing that that feeling starts to get less and less depending and every any given day it can be more or less or whatever but it's the hardest thing for me is accepting that it's okay to feel the anxiety it's okay to to feel embarrassed and like let yourself feel that so that you can move on because if you get mad at yourself for having a naturally human response to being in a room with people you're obsessed with that sucks. Like you're keeping yourself from being able to really be like, go through the process of feeling every emotion. You might keep Mm -hmm. yourself from feeling the pride that's going to come inevitably from that. 
yeah, thanks for sharing. I think, yeah, I think it's an interesting experience and it probably gets better with more and more. And if you're in the room, like there's a reason, like it's just always good to remember that. And it so. goes back again, which what would you tell a friend? And that's exactly what I would tell a friend, but it's never the first thing that comes to mind for me. I'm like, yeah, well, another reason why I'm in the room and it has nothing to do with any of that. Like, no, <laughs> like that's, there's literally no merit to that. Yeah. Okay. So last question. So I always like to ask people um, advice that they've given. So for you specifically, as someone who has a wide variety of experiences, do you have any advice to anyone in pursuit of something to what you're doing? So journalism, lifting the voices of an underrepresented community. And then also it sounds like you began without big uh, network or connections in this industry and you kind of built that. Um, yeah. I think that in particular, like, do you have any advice for people aspiring to do that one day? I would say to reach out to people you admire and that can mean if you're interested in journalism and you're obsessed with an article someone wrote the easiest part is usually finding their email like it's usually not that hard find it or find an email of someone who works with them and ask for their email and tell them that you admired it or tell them that you loved it tell them why you loved it and that can be it maybe that's all you do maybe if you genuinely want to hear about how they got to where they are in their career, ask if you can chat on the phone sometime. Like you don't have to know that person at all, but doing that is quite literally how I'm like the only reason I, not the, the main reason I'm here. Like it, people don't get reached out to that way. And I think people assume that they do like people assume, Oh, so-and-so is writing for that big magazine. So they definitely like have enough, to deal with. They get a lot of emails, but not like that. They don't get emails from people who genuinely want to hear like why they're doing what they do, how they got there, what advice they give. Like, let's mm. happen. Introducing yourself to people because it might not feel like anything right now, but if you're genuinely interested in getting to know someone, you have no idea how that could benefit you later. And that's so ambiguous to say, but I'm like every job that I've ever had has been at least in some way connected to like at least by a few degrees, someone that I at some point cold emailed no context and was like, I love your work. Like, I'd love to get to know you. Mm -hmm. People who you, whose work you admire on social media, you know, and if it feels natural to interact with them on social media, I would not send the long introduction email in a DM. Do not do that. But like, like if it feels natural to like reply to something they say, like in a discussion, like, Oh my God, I love this part of the article. Like do that, do these things just to, it's almost like kind of putting a foot in, into the door of that room just to express interest. And it's like, that gets you on people's radar. And I think that's the biggest thing is anybody can work really, not a lot of people work really hard but if they don't know anybody who would be able to amplify that work or hire them for that work, then what are they going to do? So it's yeah. like the hard work part is huge, but like, this is all assuming that that part's manageable for somebody. Like the biggest thing is it doesn't matter where you're located geographically, like sending out those emails, like yeah. following people who you admire 
actively interacting with people, maybe finding other people who are in a similar position to you in terms of wanting to work towards something and not really knowing where to start. Like there's so much power in that. I've kept in touch with people that I interned with and we're all doing super cool, different things. And like occasionally moments will opportunities will come up where we can help each other. And it's so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I honestly just think talking to people is, is and you're not bothering anyone. And if you are, that's not someone that you want to know anyway. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. I forgot to ask what your dreams and aspirations are for the future. (laughs) Yeah, that's okay. Um, I'm glad you're asking me that at the end because I'm not sure how I would have answered before. And even now I'm like, I think they're very similar to what they were. I think I'm happy. I want to be, I want to be happy, but I think so. I think I want to keep traveling. I want to keep emphasizing the part of this job that allows me to meet super interesting new people. And I want to keep putting more and more emphasis on uplifting stories that I wish I could read about more. I would love to like be a correspondent on a TV show, even if it's just like a consulting, like one time CNN brings me in to comment on a topic. Like I'd love to be thought of for speaking opportunities. Cause I really, that's part of why I'm like, hell yeah, I'll do this. Like I love to talk about these things. Maybe someday I'll do stand up, but I don't like men who do stand up which is getting in the way. <laughs> like I'm like, I want to do comedy, but I can't stand men in comedy and I can't stand the thought of having to deal with them. Mm. Those are like very specific aspirations. I'm like, I'd love to do something funny. Maybe host a red carpet correspondence for somebody someday. But in general, I want to keep doing what I'm doing and see how broad I can, how wide of a reach it can get. I'd love to write a book. That's something that I'm working on right now, really loosely, like a book uh, proposal. Super, super like early, but I think it'll happen. Um, and I want to make sure I I want I want to keep going toward being kind to myself when it comes to moments when I don't want to do anything. Yeah, like I want to keep saving space for that. Yeah, that is also so important. Like when you're managing so many different things and. You have big dreams. Yeah. That doesn't mean that you don't need days or weeks when you're just doing what you need to do. Yeah, literally. And you're not trying to do the most. That's, it's a balance for sure. Finding something sustainable for my life. I think that's definitely a huge goal. And it's going to require a lot of like willpower and maturity that I'm not sure I have yet. And I hope I can get there. Yeah. Well, those are all the questions, but I just want to thank you for your time. Um, You know, you're so busy, but it was really lovely getting to hear all of that. It was really lovely. So thank you. Oh my God. Well, likewise, I had a great time and I'd love to, if you're ever around, you always have a home here and I'll let you know if I ever am in the area. Yeah, I've never been to the Bay Area at all. Oh yeah, it is. It's really beautiful. I was going to say surprisingly, but it's not. But it is. It's really beautiful. My uncle lives in Mill Valley. So I'm like, I always forget. I have some. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Mill Valley is stunning. He's literally like the most hippie man, like performs music for children. Like that's his career. And he walks around barefoot, like whole thing. Yeah. (laughs) 
Mill Valley. <laughs> I was there yesterday. It's like so NorCal vibes. Yeah.